Hey everybody and welcome to episode 32 of iFreaks. This week on our panel we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, I'm from Salt Lake City. James Uber. I'm still recovering from the Black Friday deals at the pawn shop. I waited in line for three hours to save five bucks on an Xbox 360. Totally <laughs> worth it. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and we have a special guest this week. That's Rob Napier. That's right. Met here in Raleigh, North Carolina. So, uh, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly for people who don't know who you are? Sure. I'm a uh, iOS and Mac developer. I was a Mac developer back before iOS came around and the iPhone. I write the book uh, iOS Pushing the Limits, and I do a lot of uh, work in in the security world. So I keep a security uh, uh, cryptography package called RNCryptor for simplifying cryptography. Oh, nice. Isn't that just a bunch of fancy math? It is just a lot of fancy math, but it's easy to do it wrong. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Isn't that most computers? Just fancy it's math? It's so true. It, yeah. you know, oh, we need more math. So easy to do it wrong. Don't tell Adobe that. <laughs> so, speaking of security with iOS, it seems like Apple does a lot of things to provide you with security. I mean, they have the sandboxing and all the other stuff that they do. Do we really need to worry about security when we're programming for the iPhone? Oh, certainly. Oh, yeah. Apple has done a really great job, I feel, in iOS. While over the years there have been various problems, some of the earliest locks didn't really work well and, and early device encryption had trouble, but they, they've improved over the years. But iOS is really the first mainstream operating system that came out with least privilege as the default, uh, which was really brilliant. I mean, that they said from day one, you're going to be locked in a little sandbox and you can't do anything, which made it very hard to write malware against the iPhone. But it still doesn't get us off the hook of managing user information carefully. While we may not get infected with a virus, uh, we still have lots of ways that we could leak our customer information. What are some of those ways? If it's if it's just a self-contained app and it doesn't talk to anything else, is that still a risk? No, that's true. If you have no, I mean, if you're a simple game and you don't talk to anything, then no, you probably don't have a lot of security concerns for for user information because everything you don't take is not a problem. That's one of the best things in security to learn is if you don't want your customer's information to be your problem, don't ask for it. Mm -hmm. But once you have it, you yes, you do. And there are a lot of apps where I always like to say, if this information were put on the New York Times with your customer's name and the piece of information you have, would anyone care? Would anybody buy that copy of the Times? If it's their high score on your casual game, nah. I mean, that's true. There's not much concern there. But uh, even their to-do list, it can matter a lot. Depends on your on your customer, especially. Right. I can just see that a to-do list. You know, murder so-and-so, <laughs> dump body, you know. Yeah, that could be but a lot. You definitely have to think about those guys who are, you know, who am I meeting this week? Mm-hmm. That's often been a, a, a big source of attacks is I steal a CEO's phone for the purpose of figuring out who they're merging with. So right. there, there's actually money on the line. 
Oh, there you go. I like my example better, but yours makes more sense. <laughs> Murder Bob. <laughs> Check. <laughs> I keep that in things. So what, what are the concerns then? If you have an app that maybe talks to some other apps on the phone or even talks to an online service? Probably one of the biggest things that people underestimate the importance of is passwords. So passwords tend to get reused a lot. So you may run your cat fancier's website and you go, who cares if people steal this password? But they care a lot if they also use that same password for their banking account. And that's what Adobe, for instance, just learned is you leak a bunch of accounts and people just start reusing them uh, or the attacker starts reusing them on all kinds of very important sites. So if I had to pick one thing to be very, very careful with is when you ever ask somebody for their password or to give you a password. Uh, obviously, you also have to worry about if they have personal information, if they're storing any of their documents with you. Most of the problems come about when I then talk to a service online. So if I'm pushing this up to my server, that's usually where you're going to worry the most. Things that I'm storing locally, while there's a lot of important things to do to protect that, uh, do require that the attacker steal the device usually. I always like to make sure that if I have a security pro or a security exploit, that it requires them to also commit a real-world physical crime in the process, because then I can get the police involved. Versus if the only thing they have to do is connect to your server and attack it there, or try to attack your phone because it's listening to a port, for instance, then uh, that's a lot harder for me to get uh, law enforcement involved. So what are the things that uh, us developers can do to lock down our apps if we're communicating to a, a service or listening to a port, sure. like, you, like you If mentioned? you are only going to do one thing, if there are only one takeaway, turn on SSL. I see a lot of apps that want to talk over HTTP. And just switching that over to HTTPS makes a huge group of problems go away. Which is why I like, I like solutions that it's always more secure than not doing it, costs little, and makes entire classes of problem go away. So just so to, that would be the biggest. Just to be clear, uh, SSL. I'm I'm sure we're talking to programmers, so you know they're technical yeah. folks. But just to be clear, SSL is basically uh, a public-private key pair that you get through a handshake with the server that then encrypts the connection, so that any data that's sent afterward, like a password will yep. be will be encrypted and therefore not sent in the clear so that when you're sitting in the airport and you send your password over the wire, somebody else sniffing the network can't pick it up. Exactly. It provides two main things. So it provides encryption, which you just discussed. It also, if deployed correctly, provides authentication, which makes sure that you're talking to who you think you're talking to. So... A major attack, that, and one that we're starting to see more and more of in these public areas at the airport, at the Starbucks, is people setting up what we call a man-in-the-middle attack, which is I set up a little access point that you connect to, and then I just forward all your traffic to the next guy. Even with SSL, if when you ask for an SSL key, I, in the middle, hand you mine, and I turn around and I ask the server for his. Now I decrypt all your data, turn it around, and hand it to the guy upstream. And so now I have your 
I still have your data unencrypted. SSL can protect against that, but only if it's deployed right. And that means, usually it means you go and buy a certificate for your server. If you do that, for the most part, it's going to fix most of your problems. Usually the trouble comes when people try to roll their own solution and they want to turn off authentication. They turn off uh, certificate validation and then they then they have trouble. Right, and the certificate validation validates who issued the, the certificate and I think there's an originator certificate that you can check on the server. Basically, the SSL certificates are signed by somebody else. Right. And so I can say, I know this one was signed by VeriSign, and I trust VeriSign. The part people sometimes miss is the only reason why the fact that VeriSign signed this certificate matters is because Apple decided to trust VeriSign for you. There's nothing magical about the VeriSign certificate. You could make your own certificate and sign your things yourself and mark that in your app as the one and only cert you will trust. And that's actually more secure than a VeriSign certificate. But it's a bit more complicated to do it correctly. So when I work with clients, sometimes we set that up because they want that kind of control. But for most, most developers, I say, look, an SSL certificate are pretty darn cheap compared to the amount of time you would spend building a good solution. So you go out, you buy one, and uh, you turn it on. So what's the process for setting up your own certificate if, if you wanted to go that way? Sure. So you can generate um, a certificate. I've got uh, some links I could send you with uh, where I give a whole talk on it. But you can create one in Keychain and export that as your certificate. You can then take that and put it into, you put the private key on your server, and you put the public key into your app. You bundle it right into the app. And in the NS URL connection callbacks that you're making to, to connect to the server, uh, there's a point at which you can do an authentication challenge. And it will hand you a certificate, and you can use the security framework to determine that it is signed by your certificate. You load it up off of disk, and you set it as what's called the anchor. And you say, this is the only anchor I will accept. I don't, if it's from VeriSign, I don't trust it. I only trust mine. And we call that an anchor. Um, okay, that all sounds pretty straightforward. You mentioned there's ways you can do it wrong. How, what are some easy ways to do it wrong? Sure. So in SSL, the most common way to do things wrong is to turn off the validation. You go, oh, I don't want to buy a certificate. I'll just turn it off. That's the most common thing. Most of the things I see people do wrong go around encryption rather than SSL. The most common are around AES. When people try to do AES encryption, almost everybody does that wrong. The most common thing people do, and unfortunately almost all the example code on the net is wrong, because what it does is it takes that password. So this, these are the cases where you want to do a password encryption which people tend to do a lot. They want to send some information up to the server. They're not using SSL. They just want to encrypt it and put it up there. And the dilemma is they take that password that was given to them, and they think that that can be used directly as an AES key, and it can't be. There's a process you have to use called a key derivation function, um, and the most famous is PBKDF2, password-based key derivation function, version 2, that will convert that properly for you. 
if you just use the password directly as the key, then your available key space, you've taken this enormous, enormous key space of AES and shrunk it down to the space of things that can be tight and are likely to be tight. And that's a tiny key space. So that's the most common thing people do wrong. And unfortunately, most of the examples on the net do it that way. Uh, they just byte copy the password over. Then people forget that you have to send a uh, what's called an initialization vector. It's the second major thing you have to do when you call the AES routines. And unfortunately, in the code, it says, beside the IV initialization vector option, it says optional, which is one of the most unfortunate comments that was ever put <laughs> in a header. It's not optional. It's just if you don't give one, it's going to use zero. And it really has to be unique to secure your system. So what is an initialization vector? Sure. So AES, the thing that most people don't understand is AES cannot encrypt large files. It's not possible. AES does one thing. It can convert 16 bytes with a totally random key. It will convert 16 bytes of plain text into 16 bytes of ciphertext. That's all it does. So when you're trying to encrypt something bigger than 16 bytes, you have to add another piece. And that other piece is called a mode. The most common mode is called CBC, uh, Cypher Blockchaining. And what that means is that I kind of feed information from each block, each 16 bytes. I take a bit of that information, I feed it into the next one so that I can maintain a secure algorithm as I walk through. The most obvious thing to do would be just I would encrypt each 16 bytes one after another. But if you do that, that's incredibly insecure because it means that every time you have the same 16 bytes shows up, you will get the same output. Well, that means, say you have a big block of zeros followed by another big block of zeros. Well, they will encrypt to the same thing. So I can actually use that to decrypt whole files because I know what certain blocks probably hold, for instance. Or if it's an image, uh, there's some very famous pictures. You can actually see all the It'll turn into kind of a weird line drawing, but you can see the whole image because it's just textures. So instead, you have to make sure that each block modifies the next block. And the most common way to do that is with uh, cipher blockchaining. The trouble is your first block doesn't have anything to mess with it because it doesn't have a block before it. So what you do is you kind of make up a random block. And we call that the initialization vector. Okay, that makes sense. And there's lots of other ones that you can use. There's other modes. The there's a one called a counter mode. And it's incredibly easy to do it wrong because if you ever use the same initialization vector with your key, if you ever accidentally pick the same one twice, it becomes completely insecure. It's easy to decrypt. My real point of here of, of all of this is not, I don't think people should take lots and lots and lots of notes about all the things you have to do with AES, so much as to recognize it's actually fairly complicated, and so you should go get a library. Mm -hmm. That's actually why I wrote our encryptor, because I couldn't find another one that did it that was easy to use, that you could just make one call, that you could say encrypt data with key, or encrypt data with password, and get your data back in a way that was good. Because if you do it yourself by hand, you're probably going to do it wrong. I've had several bugs. I mean, I took great care in building mine, and I made several bugs that I had to go back and fix. So even when you kind of know what you're doing, it's challenging. 
So you created your own library for doing this kind of thing? It's a front end on top of common crypto. So it only use, I recommend to people never build your own low level math routines, but it makes use of Apple's provided stuff to, but it makes it easy to use correctly. Okay. Do you have to do anything special on the server or is this no. all standard? Well, excellent question because the dilemma is that there is no standard format for AES encryption. Again, AES encryption just transforms 16 bytes of, te- of plain text into 16 bytes of ciphertext. Nobody has really created a well-established standard for how to package that together with all of the extra information, such as this initialization vector. There are several other numbers you need called salts. So, unfortunately, most folks have had to build their own, and our encryptor took the same approach. It has its own format. There are a number of implementations of that format. So there's now C code, PHP, Python, Ruby, Java. I don't think we have a C sharp implementation yet, but um, a number of people have helped build various implementations uh, so that on your server, if your server's in Python, there's a Python implementation where you can read this format. What's different about your format versus some of the others? There's several formats that are out there. OpenSSL is probably the most famous. It's not bad. They don't follow certain best practices. They don't salt their data quite correctly, which makes it much less secure than it could be. So the OpenSSL format, it's not bad, but it's not as secure as it really should be. And it lacks checking. AES only provides encryption. It doesn't prove that the person didn't change the file after they got it. And there are, in fact, ways to take an encrypted file and modify it such that it will decrypt to what you would like it to be. You can hand me a message that's AES encrypted. If I know what the original text was, or at least part of it, I can actually modify the text you or the the encrypted version you gave me so that when you decrypt it it will say something different and that can say what i wanted to say oh that's um, interesting that's yes just because and i don't need the key i don't need to know your password i just need the data so there are fixes for that one of the fixes is called an hmac hmac um and an hmac is essentially a secure signing hash it, it's like signing it isn't HMAC the basis for OAuth? I don't know. I think it was for OAuth like, anyway. I mean, most things that want to authenticate use HMAC. It is probably the most famous of the algorithms. Um, and HMAC itself uses other algorithms. So, for instance, you plug SHA-256 into HMAC. And HMAC is just a way of applying a hashing function to create a secure signature. But again, if you don't sign your data, then people could change it. And the OpenSSL format does not provide that. So I wasn't very happy with that format. It was very hard on iOS to use it because uh, the OpenSSL libraries aren't readily available and they're hard to build. And so it was a, it was a difficult sell. So there's another format that I actually do like called AES Crypt. And they have a different set of platforms that they support. 
and I do encourage people to take a look at it. They don't actually have, though, a, a solid iOS port. And one of the biggest problems with AES Crypt is using it, I couldn't make use of the built-in functions from Apple, which oh, okay. is one of the goals. You want to be fast, and you want to use Apple's code as much as you can. Mm-hmm. They have a proprietary hashing algorithm, so it doesn't, which is, it's probably a fine algorithm, but it's hasn't been analyzed by analysts, mm-hmm. and I can't make use of Apple's hard, special hardware optimizations. So that's why I didn't go with the AES crypt format. So is that like a, a C library? Well, they provide it in C, and I cannot remember which other languages, but it is primarily in C, is their main language. I yeah. want to I want to change tactics a little bit here. Sure. What what kinds of uh, data should you be encrypting? I mean, obviously passwords, probably mm-hmm. usernames, or, or anything that grants somebody access to something. But but are there mm-hmm. other uh, other things that uh, people don't normally think that they should be encrypting that they should be? Sure. For the most part, I actually don't recommend that people use AES encryption very often. I think people use it much more often than they really should. Usually, I find when people come to me asking about cryptography, they actually are not trying to protect user information. They're trying to protect information from their user, which is not security. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry. It struck me as funny. <clears throat> but it is true. It's usually 90% of the people who come to be talking about cryptography are trying to hide something. They want to hide their secret key from their user. And that is a losing proposition. <laughs> we can talk more about obfuscation in a minute, but, and why and what you should and should not do with obfuscation. But it is a, it is a losing game. But most of the time, the things you should be using are SSL. And you should be using device encryption, which is very, very easy to turn on. You can go to your, when you create an app certificate or an app certificate on the uh, dev site, you can go into the entitlements and just mark turn on device protection. Actually, you can now do it in Xcode. I'd forgotten that they've added it. So in your settings for your target, you can actually just go down into the entitlements and say, please turn on device encryption. Now, what, what does that do? If the user has entered a PIN, and it only works if they entered a PIN, it will automatically encrypt everything that gets written to the flash. And what that means is, is if I steal your device and have it in my hands and don't have your PIN, and I just try to read the flash directly, it's all encrypted. So what you're saying is if they open up the phone, pull mm-hmm. the hard drive out of it, plug it into something else. Exactly. Got it. Got it. And, and now, is that done on an app-by-app app basis, or is it done on it a device-by-device basis? So it is done app-by-app. App. So each app can say, please turn this on for me. Mm-hmm. So you do have to request it. But once you've requested it, it's for your whole app. The device takes care of all the trouble for you takes care of the encryption it always writes it to the device encrypted and what it does is it keeps a password in memory that when you turn off the device or the device locks it automatically gets rid of just overwrites that it actually keeps it in a special place in memory that it's built to be destroyed so it's not available anywhere on the device until the user enters their pin again 
at which point it recalculates the password mm -hmm. and can then use that to unlock things for you again. So that's, that's usually how I recommend that people encrypt things locally. Now, if you have very sensitive information, you may want to still use AES encryption or your own direct encryption because it won't be encrypted if the user doesn't enter a PIN. Right. So, for instance, uh, the 1Password guys, I mean, they encrypt. They use their own encryption um, because, they don't because they also take their own password. They don't just trust the device. Mm -hmm. But if you're not doing that, usually I would just say, turn on device encryption. And in fact, just do it, or it's called data protection. And I would just, I would tell people, do that always. There's seldom a reason you don't want that. The reason that they don't turn it on by default is it does, it can create some troubles for you if you try to read your files while the device is locked, which can happen for certain kinds of apps. Because then they go, the device is locked, their file is encrypted, they can't read it. And so you do need to take care of that. And that's why that would be very surprising to developers. So that's why they don't turn it on by default. But, uh, I think, but most people should just turn it on. It costs very little. Yep. So besides uh, using SSL and mm -hmm. turning on device encryption, uh, mm -hmm. what other things should people be doing to avoid any security pitfalls for their apps? If they are storing a password on their server, many, many issues involving iOS security wind up actually being server security because that's mm -hmm. where the data is getting put. If you are ever storing people's password on your server, SSL is the first step because you don't want it to be found across the wire. The second step is to make sure that on your, on your site, it is protected correctly. So again, when someone comes along, like they did with Evernote and everybody else in the, and LinkedIn and everybody else in the last couple of years and steals your entire database, you can say these passwords cannot be reused. I can guarantee it. So yep. everybody needs to change them here, but I don't care if you use the same password elsewhere. <clears throat> and the way that you can achieve that pretty simply is called salting and hashing. So most people are familiar with the SHA series of, of hashes, SHA-1, and now we have SHA-2, which includes like SHA-256 as one mm -hmm. of the several SHA-2 hashes. But MD5 was a hash. These are all hashes. And the idea of a hash is I can take some value and convert it into something that looks random. Yep. So, that, so that's the goal. So the way you would store passwords is it's fairly common is I just take the password, I hash it, and I store it in the database. And that means if I steal the database, I can't figure out your password. And that's because I just want to clarify here too. Yes. I'm, I, I spend a lot of time. In fact, um, I'm a contractor, but all of my contracts are server side, mm -hmm. Ruby on Rails. And yep. uh, so the reason that you want to do hashing as opposed to encryption is that the hash is non-reversible. Correct. One, it's a one-way transformation. So, and so, so I can take two passwords and, and I can take two, the two hashes and prove they're the same one without right. ever being able to figure out what the actual password was. Right. And the other thing is, is that then if they get the code off of the machine that would have been able mm -hmm. to decrypt the password... I mean, right. there's no encryption key, right? So you're you're just out of luck. You have to guess right. the password and then see if the the hash matches. Exactly. Now the dilemma is though, 
people typically, again, do this incorrectly. And this is what burned LinkedIn. LinkedIn was hashing their passwords. And despite that, they had a huge security breach. It caused a lot of people trouble. And again, got them on the front page of newspapers, which I would say to most developers, you never want to be in that situation. So you do these things so that you don't wind up on the front page of newspapers with bad press. Yeah. Their mistake was they hashed, but they didn't salt. And what a salt is, first, the problem of just hashing. So my password is Fuzzy Bunny. And so you hash it and put it in the database. Your password is also Fuzzy Bunny. So they hash that and put it in the database. Now when an attacker steals the database, they can see that you and I have the same password. Yep. So if they crack your password, they automatically crack mine too, which greatly simplifies their problem, especially because for a password like that, they probably already hashed that password before they stole the database. There were probably They've a thousand... The Funny bunnies on LinkedIn, so exactly. that's probably what they used. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And they can go and they and they can go to any site. If everybody does it this way, then cracking it on one site cracks it for everybody. I mean, it was, now it was, I have everybody. It was the same problem on Adobe, and, and in fact, there were several places out there that were saying these are the most common passwords, and it's not right. because they, you know, they could see what the password was. It was because they could hash the password and then say, "Oh, there are ten thousand of these in this database." So the first thing you need to do is called salting. And when you salt the password, it means you put some piece of information at the start of the password that is going to be different from me than from you. So even if two people have the same password, they have a different hash in the database. I usually put my salts at the end. I, I don't think it matters, it though. It does not. Um, so there are two ways to hash or salt. You can salt randomly or you can salt deterministically. And either is kind of fine. If you salt randomly, then what you're going to do is you're just going to make up a number and make up eight bytes of random data. And you're going to append them or prepend them to your, to your password before you hash. And then you're going to take those eight bytes and write them into the database along with the hash. So you're telling the attacker what the salt is. That's not a problem because it doesn't help them. Right, because it randomizes the, the hash on the password. Right. And then so, if they yeah. guess mine, they can't guess yours because... Precisely. The, the salt is different, and therefore the hash is different. Mm -hmm. So that's one way. That way works great for encrypting files, for instance. And that way works great on devices. That's usually the way you do it on, on a device. On a server, though, you typically have, when you have a password, you almost always have a username, too. And that username is unique. So you could also just use the username as the salt. I never thought of that. That's a good idea. However, if you do that, you need to do one more thing, which is you need to have an application-specific salt that's the same for everybody in the database. But you need to put, you know, migrate app colon username colon password and hash that together. And the reason you do that is if you just make your salt username and then you append the password, well, if somebody else does that too, then again, they can reuse they can see that you have the same password on these different servers. How is Let me that? Say that again. So I steal one guy's database, and he uses the salting oh, scheme I see. username plus password. And then you he steal also steals another... your database, yeah. and you're using username plus password. And the guy uses the same username and the same password. I can now see that they're the same. 
Right. So then if I can guess it, I can get into both systems. I can get into both systems. And I already know, hey, I've stolen the bank's database, and I've stole Cat Fancier's database, and now I can start looking for people who have the same hash on both, and those are useful to me. I should try to attack those passwords, rather than having to attack everything in the database. Mm-hmm. But you can thwart that very easily. Again, you just come up with something that's unique to you that would never be on the that the bank would never use, and stick that on the front. Yeah. And the nice thing about this is it is much easier to deal with when over random numbers. The problem with random is I have to have a way to fetch the data. I have to fetch the random number. Yes. And the random salt, read it, and then I can compute the answer. That is more expensive than if I can just already know what it's going to be. Most of the time, the salts work well for this um, and are very secure. Yeah, one other thing that Adobe got into trouble for was that they had their um, password hints in clear in the right. database. Another and, excellent thing, too. And <laughs> uh, people had put in there, my password is monkey. Mon- yes. And so you can also look for people who just even if you don't know, even if they don't say specifically the hint, um, people will tend to gravitate towards the same hints for the same passwords. Right. And so again, it helps me. It gives me a lot of information. So yes, you want to you want to make sure that all that information is hashed or encrypted, depending on what's right. what's appropriate. Yeah, you need to be able to retrieve the password hint, so you'd have to encrypt that. But. It uh, yes. I'm yeah, sorry, so so it's interesting to me that the the server is a point of vulnerability to the app. Yes, and most that is the place that most attackers are going to go after. Well, it makes they... it makes sense to attack your phone. I basically have to be able to get on the device uh, one way or the other. But to attack the server, I mean, I just have to know where it is. Yes. Ah, where well, I was going with salt with salting. So even salting though is really not enough. So one of the problems is, so this salt, especially you have a deterministic salt, that's going to be public information. You should always assume the salt is public. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a secret. And even if it's a random one, it's not really secret. It's right there. So hashing, the SHA algorithm are designed intentionally to be insanely fast to calculate and easy to generate custom hardware that does nothing but calculate them really, really fast. Which is awesome because we need to calculate them a lot in the real world. However, it's very bad from a security point of view to allow attackers to guess my passwords, you know, millions a second and wildly distributed. I mean, they can, they have a botnet that's controlling many, many machines, people that they've taken over their machines and they just get their, get all of their owned machines to calculate SHAs for them. So you, you need to make it harder on the attacker. And the way you make it harder is that you need to hash more than once. Now, you could just apply SHA a bunch of times in a row. That turns out not to be a great solution. Uh, The math of that turns out to allow some shortcuts. So they've developed mechanisms that will, that are hard to run in parallel intentionally. And the one I spoke about earlier, PBKDF2, is probably the most famous. And it allows you to convert with a num with a iteration count. You can say, I'm going to convert, I'm going to convert this key with salts. Part of the algorithm takes those salts for you. So it'll do all that, that work for you. You hand it the, the password you'd like, the salts you'd like, 
and then how many iterations you'd like. And it will hand you back a password. The number of iterations is going to scale with how long it takes. And often those numbers are on the order of 10,000, even 100,000 times you're going to run this algorithm to make it slow enough. Now, on a server especially, you need to be thinking a little bit about performance, and so you need to tune it a little bit so that you're not making it very hard on you. But what you're trying to do is take a, an algorithm that the attacker could make millions of guesses a second. And with PBKDF2, you could get that down to an order of 12, 20 guesses a second. So that's pretty dramatic. Um, and with 20 guesses a second, he's not going to get very far. So doesn't that affect your performance? So, I mean, you, do, you did point out that it does slow things down. Uh, it can. So you would still be better it is a trade-off of how much, of how big you want to make that number. I will say that even a thousand times can do dramatic impact on the attacker while having negligible impact on you. Right. When I say, when I, so 10,000 10, is the number I usually use for my apps. An iPhone 4 can calculate, can calculate PBKDF2 10,000 times in about 80 milliseconds. So those are the orders of magnitude we're talking about. And a Mac, MacBook Pro, can do it about 100,000 times in approximately, again, about 80 milliseconds. So we're not talking about uh, huge amounts of, of impact on you, but that's a whole lot longer than it takes to do one. The other way around, like, what is an attacker actually doing? Walk us through to actually kind of break sure. these passwords. So the most common thing he's going to do is get he gets your he gets your passwords, and if he's lucky, you haven't done any of these things. You you just say done a simple hash, and then he's going to consult what's called a rainbow table, and a rainbow table means somebody's gone out and run SHA one on every possible eight-character password that you could type. And I can't remember how many gigs that turns out to be, but it's not really that big. And he's stuck it on a hard drive. And they stick them on BitTorrent and share them around. So if I want to know, for, so for very short strings, all the SHAs are known. So that's, that's what really interesting, because that, that leans toward uh, password length as well. It does. I mean, and complexity. I mean, they want to attack the very simple ones. I don't know if they're all. I don't know if every possible one has been calculated, but definitely all the lower all the lowercase and numbers, those have been calculated when I was last looking into it years ago. So those, like I say, it's called a rainbow table. If they can't, though, say you've salted or something, they're going to need to start attacking it, and they're going to use various pieces of software. Uh, one of my favorites is called John the Ripper, um, and it's just a program that guesses passwords really, really fast. It's highly optimized to do it. It does, and it, it tries to create rules. So it starts with a dictionary, and then it starts to, so it tries just tries all the common passwords. Then it tries common passwords with, with permutations. So it tries adding one on the end. It tries changing the O's to zeros. It tries capitalizing it in, in common ways. And so it just keeps running through different rules and again, does not care usually whether they find your password. They're just trying to find somebody's password. Wait, it knows if I use an exclamation point for one? It, oh my gosh. Amazingly, amazingly, <laughs> that is no longer secret now that you said it here on iPhones. Oh. oh no. <laughs> and one for L? Oh my gosh. Oh my You're gosh. totally screwed. 
Oh, no. So it's going to try all those. And, of course, this is where complexity does help you some in that the more complicated your password is, the more random your password is, the more it's going to cause trouble. I mean, for, for these guessers. But computers have gotten so fast that your ability to come up with a really, really random password is, is not very good. Your ability to remember that password is low compared to their ability to guess them. Um, so that's why it's so important on the service provider, on, on the server implementer, and, and on the device or on the iOS side too, to protect these passwords and make them harder to guess or to do guesses against them. Because no matter how good a password I come up with, these password crackers can, can guess them faster until they're so long I can't type them anymore. No, great. That's a lot, a lot of info, I think. A lot of times we get lost into saying what we should do to be secure without understanding what people are actually doing to get at us. So that's, that's great. That's some great info. Thanks a lot. Yeah. The, the, other, the other really important part of it, though, is remembering that th oftentimes their goal, they have an actual goal. People, most attackers don't actually want your password. They want access to something. There was a day when that used to be just to show off that they could break into systems, but more and more the people who are attacking a lot of these things are in fact professionals and are doing it for money. So they are trying to find ways to break into banking accounts and that sort of thing. So so don't 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 assume it's just college crackers. It's it is in fact sometimes organized crime. Yeah. So um this this leads into one of the best practices that uh, I recommend to people and that is that you use something like one password or last pass and allow that uh and and I've been working on uh s slowly migrating my passwords into uh one of those systems but then you let them generate the random password and remember yes. it for you and that way your password is different everywhere it's not uh it's not one of these you know uh my you know my name is chuck passwords that can be easily <laughs> guessed and uh, it is kind of a pain sometimes if I'm on a machine that doesn't have my password set up on there because then I have to figure out how to get it over there. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, overall for security, it is, it is totally worth it. So there is a, there is a middle ground that I recommend to people. I use one, I also use one password. So one of my favorite tools. I'm using LastPass. I'll tell people. Ah, okay. That. So one, but some accounts I need to be able to get into from places that that's difficult. Uh, as you say, mm -hmm. and I need to do it all the time. So, here is another technique that I like to recommend. Come up with a password. And you're going to use this password everywhere that you need this, that you need to be able to log in. But what you do is you come up with a prefixing system or a suffixing system. So if it's my Stack Overflow account, it could be SO and the password, or the password SO or underscore SO or whatever. But some, some system that I, that I like. And that way, your password, in fact, is different on every server. You're essentially salting mm -hmm. uh, with a different salt on every server. And all you then need to remember is this one secure password and kind of what is my salting algorithm. I don't recommend this as the one. And I recommend that when possible, you use random passwords. But, uh, but sometimes that's so inconvenient that it is better to use something else like this. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard a few other people say it. So yeah, you just memorize a a random password and yeah, some kind of algorithm for that. 
and and that makes sense too. It's just it's just a matter of convenience over security, and and that's always been uh, a trade off that we've had to deal with in computers. It's just now because people are so publicly and generally attacking uh, systems, uh, we don't have an option anymore for most folks to just <laughs> ignore it because it's it's now the lay people out there that are getting hacked too. I will say there's sometimes a mistake made about that. You know, it's always a trade-off between performance or, or, or convenience and security. That does not mean, however, that just because it's inconvenient, it is secure. Right. And I have seen that. Some, my favorite is the systems that force you to constantly change your password. I used to work in corporate information security, and uh, I actually worked against that policy. I got rid of that policy because it causes people to make worse and worse passwords. That's true. Or worse and decisions. It and worse decisions, and it forces because they always will forget their password, especially if they're changing every sixty days. <laughs> they never know their password. I hate so that. So they're constantly calling in and having password resets. Well, the thing to remember is attackers don't have to go the obvious way. If you have two different ways into your system, they get to pick. So if password resets are the easier way into your system, they'll just call and ask for a password reset. Yep. There we go. And Social engineering. Exactly. If people are constantly asking for password resets, then it's hard to make that a suspicious event. So you're going to make that really easy. Yeah, so yeah, I'd rather sense. let people pick a password and then just and let it stay uh, at least a year. And 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 frankly, usually forcing people to reset them is is not worth the uh, the cost it generates. Yeah, and people are pretty good at getting around those repeated password ones. If it mm-hmm. if, if it remembers the last five, I, I know people just, will just redo <laughs> it five times in a row, yep. and then they're good. They get back their yep. own password. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, I love those too. It's like you can't use any of the last like you said, the last five passwords. So the last five passwords were my password, my password one, two, three, and four. Four. <laughs> and now yeah. I'm back. And now I'm back. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, I've I've seen people do that. I've seen people write down uh, the passwords and put it next to their computer. Mm-hmm. Um although I will say that is better than having a really, really easy to guess password. That's true. As long as nobody yes, walks are, up your, your only options. Right. Well, and that's the thing is I always remember before I said I always like to force the attacker to do more and more difficult things. So now he can't hack it from halfway around the world. He has to be at my desk. That's I'm not true. advocating that people write down their passwords. I'm just when actually thinking through risk, the actual risk of various behaviors, we often make mistakes and we often think that the more difficult thing is in fact more secure where in fact making it really seamless is often more secure single sign on mm-hmm. greatly improves security because it means people type their password less yep which is a good thing it means that they never type into the wrong window for instance <laughs> i've done that before <laughs> which is a serious problem <laughs> yeah type it into skype oh sorry yeah. guys oh, forget that <laughs> yeah anyway <laughs> So do you have any other security tips for us before we wrap yeah. up the show? Sure. So I did want to talk about uh, obfuscation that okay. I promised to talk about. The most common questions I see are, I have this super secret login to my server that I use to make sure that only my application can talk to my server. And how do I do that? The answer is you don't, unfortunately. 
that there is you as a server side writer can never assume that the thing you're talking to at the other end is your app. And the moment you assume that that's true, you're sunk. Because if I send out the key in the software, I just gave the attacker everything he needs. All he, he has a thing that will talk to me. He just has to trick it into doing other things. And I gave him all the parts he needs. He sticks a debugger on it, and he goes and finds my key. And you can do all kinds of complicated things to try to make that really hard to figure out. But in the end, he's always going to get that key because eventually the software has to pull it out in the plain text and stick it in memory. Alternately, eventually it's going to stick it on the wire. And he can then watch the traffic go by. And he can set up a man in the middle because, again, he controls the whole device. It's his device. So you cannot authenticate devices. And you cannot authenticate software. The only thing you truly can authenticate is people. You, can, you can't because they have a secret that they keep in their brain, mm -hmm. which is their password. That's the only thing you can really authenticate. So I always tell people, if your business model is heavily based on making sure that, the, that only my product is the one that can talk to my service, you really need to change your business model. <laughs> And develop one that says only my customers, the people, can talk to my service, which usually means they need to log in. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that all is lost. I, I always try to tell people, if you do, if you have something that you would like to keep honest people honest, the old classic, right? If that's all you're trying to do and you're just, and you understand that people are going to break it, but you'd like to keep most people from not breaking it, then sure. Scramble it any way you want. Just keep it simple. Don't, don't be spending lots of time figuring out how you're going to hide it. Because whatever scramble you use, any small thing is going to stop most of your attackers. And nothing you do is going to stop the big ones. Mm -hmm. So don't waste too much time and money on it. I used to work in hardware manufacturing and we dealt with, you know, counterfeiting. We used smart chips. Barcode labels. We went and audited, you know, our vendors. We did everything. We still had counterfeits. You just, you have to work it into the business plan. Yeah. Well, it's like, uh, I, I tell people this with, uh, server security. Uh, I used to be a sysadmin. I mean, it's, you know, you set up a firewall so that they can't talk to your server on ports you don't want them to. And you, you know, you change the standard ports for the things that, you know, would give them access to the server. But the thing is, is that most of that, most of that is just obscuring what, you know, what, what people would expect from a standard server of whatever type you've got. And so, you know, that's going to keep out the, the folks who are scanning the network and trying to find an SSH port or scanning the network and trying to find the, what is it for Windows, a remote desktop port mm -hmm. and things like that. But if somebody is determined to hack you, then it doesn't matter. Right. They will scan right. your server until they figure out where to get in, and and then they will try and find a way in. And then what you need to do is focus your efforts on, A, how do I respond to that, and how do I detect it? So that means having people assigned to it who are dealing with this all the time. That, nobody likes to hear that. They like to hear, I make one purchase, and boom, I'm done. But I always mm -hmm. point, if you could make it so that people can't hack your software running on an iPhone, 
then remember, Apple controls every single piece from the hardware all the way up to the OS. They could, how is it they can't stop jailbreaking? The day they make it impossible to jailbreak, that's the day you can start thinking about making your piece of software running on top of it impossible to hack. Yep. Makes sense. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Sure. Uh, Jane, you want to start us off? Okay. With all this talk about salt and hash, I may be kind of hungry. Maybe I should have had a better breakfast or something, but I'm going to make a pick for corned beef hash. And you should, you should, you should, you should always add salt. If you ever had it without salt, just no good. As far as uh, picks, I just found this out the other day, or not the other, about a month ago, that I kind of have Emacs bindings in my fingers, and I like to use them. And I've always used Terminal and OSX, and using the meta key to kind of go between words. It's kind of a pain. I always use Escape, which doesn't work that well, but there's a an option in terminal where you can actually use your option key, like I have it set for everything else that actually works in terminal. So you can go to your terminal preferences and set use your option key as your meta so you can jump through your words and stuff when you're going on the, on the command line. So hey, that's my pick for today. Awesome. I use iTerm. Maybe I should pick iTerm. I'm going to pick iTerm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a terminal emulator just like terminal is for Mac. And uh, it has the same option. So I use iTermed. I like mm-hmm. it. I need to check it out. I've, I've been meaning to. I just haven't gotten around to it. Yep. And then um, I've been listening to a book called Duct Tape Marketing on Audible. And I'm really enjoying that. So I'm going to pick that. Um, it's just a great book. He also has a podcast. Uh, John Jantz does. Uh, I'll pick those. And uh, I'm also going to pick one other podcast that I listen to. Um, I just started listening to it, and I've been really enjoying it. It's called Security Now. It's one of the twit.tv shows. And it's a little more general than, say, you know, the the kind of discussion we had about uh, iOS and server, you know, security. But, you know, it's interesting. They talk about all kinds of stuff related to security and and some of the things you need to look out for. It's more consumer-focused, but it's still interesting. So I'm going to pick that. Rob, what are your picks? Sure. I got a, a couple. One is my all-time favorite hack, which was uh, Ken Thompson's uh, ACM paper, Reflections on Trusting Trust, where he uh, details how he hacked the compiler to put new backdoors into login every time you recompiled it, and then hacked the compiler to put the hack back into the compiler when you built the compiler. Wow. And it's perhaps the best security hack ever done. <laughs> my, my second one is to anyone who really cares about, uh, crypto, uh, and would like to really know how you do it. Uh, I s- really recommend the Stanford course. It's a free class through Coursera, the cryptography course. Um, it is one of the hardest classes I've ever taken in my life. But you really dig into how this stuff works and how you do security proofs. You know, what the difference between, well, nobody's been able to break it versus I have proven it secure within a certain set of uh, givens. So uh, that is a great class. And uh, my other one is I, I always think that people should spend a lot more time uh, stretching their brains uh, programming-wise and learn to do things out of their comfort comfort space. I've been doing that with functional programming 
uh, for a little while now. And I think that's really good to get into a whole new paradigm and, and see all your assumptions you've made that you keep bringing around to the next platform you learn, how, yes, there are, in fact, entirely other ways of programming. And uh, for that, my favorite book is uh, Learn You a Haskell for Great Good, which is, uh, you can buy it as a book, but it's also available online. And I just, I, I really love that. I've actually gotten more into Scala lately than Haskell, but I, I, I think actually everybody should spend a little time learning Haskell. Awesome. Yeah, very cool. That'd be helpful for me. I, I, I do see in every language. so It's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's always a problem. Well, it's a problem I've always had when I bring people into iOS and they have like a background in Java. So their first question is, you know, well, how do I spin off threads? And how do I, you know, it's like, well, you, you don't. And there's a lot of, well, you don't. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. Objective-C does handle a lot of that stuff for you, doesn't it? Well, not just handling it for you, but doing it actually that you sh you need to think about the problem differently. Instead of mm -hmm. driving things, you need to just listen for things and, and respond to them and that sort of thing. So it's just uh, in the same thing when you start studying a, a language like Haskell, you go, well, how do I say X equals 5? And the answer is you don't. Um, and X equals X plus 1. Well, there is no X for which that is true. So that is nonsense. Um, <laughs> My mind is just blown. <laughs> Your mind is blown. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Rob. It was fun to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week.